Welcome back to Winter is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy, and more importantly, how we can win. I'm your host, Yuri Lepstein, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative. So first and foremost, it's great to be back. We've been gone for a little while. We've been rejiggering the podcast. And I'd like to announce that Winter is Here is going to be moving to a bi-weekly schedule. But fear not. There will be plenty of exciting content coming out from our DI to keep you busy in the meantime. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you all. But today, I'm really excited to speak with Roya Hakakian. Roya is a writer, journalist, poet, and political activist. She was a founding member of the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center and is a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Roya has served on the board of Refugees International, a nonprofit dedicated to human rights and the relocation of refugees, and as a fellow at the Whitney Humanities Center at Yale University, where incidentally, we overlapped when I was a student. Her writing appears in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, and NPR's All Things Considered. Welcome, Roya. Hi, thank you so much. So I want to frame today's conversation on the remarkable revolution in Iran and its specific connection to the war in Ukraine and how both of these battles connect to the larger context of the global fight between tyranny and freedom. But first, I want to give our listeners a sense of your background and some of your past experiences. So I'd like to start with something you mentioned a few weeks ago in your testimony addressing the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. You noted that although you're often described as a writer and poet, you better identify with the description of immigrant and naturalized U.S. citizen. So I love that description. You know, my parents are from the former Soviet Union, so I'm the son of immigrants. So I, I really love that that's the primary way you identify. But I wonder if you can tell us about your journey from Iran to the United States and how you came to pursue your work in global human rights. It's wonderful that you have listened to all that because it just makes the conversation so much easier. Yeah, I mean, my most recent book is called The Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. And it was a book that I was unexpectedly, unexpected to me, first of all, decided to write when in 2016, we all began to hear things like, our country is full. We don't have any room for immigrants. And then came the ban. And then, you know, these rumors that we need Swedish immigrants in America as opposed to immigrants from, you know, Muslim nations. And, and then there were all these talks about, you know, has the American democracy gone too far? And should we rein it in? And do we need to reconsider some of our values and so on and so forth? And these assaults, in my view, were coming from both sides, from both the left and the right, each arguing for, you know, their own benefit. And so suddenly I realized, especially after one announcement, which came after one of the speeches of Donald Trump, where he said, we're going to even look at denaturalized citizens from those countries that we consider unsavory and see whether or not we should retract those citizenships. And all of a sudden, you know, when I put all those things together, although I've been in America for 35 years, I was steeped in panic. And the panic was so irrational because I thought I've been here for more years than I 
was in Iran. You know, if I'm anything, I'm an American before I'm anything else. So why should I be anxious? Why should this upset me? And then I realized that I needed to stage two wars in the best way that I knew, which was through writing. One was a war on behalf of the immigrant to say that, you know, we're not here just to staff the hospitals and pick strawberries. We're also here to defend democracy because we, having fled authoritarian countries, understand what it is that native-born Americans fail to see, understand how democracy isn't just something that manifests itself every four years when you go to the polls, but it is something that if you have not had it, can identify it in the smallest minutiae of day-to-day interactions between the individual and the society. And so on one hand, it was defense of the immigrant. And on the other hand, I decided to wage a war in defense of the American democracy and decided that it was for me to show how this democracy boiled down to, you know, daily affairs. You know, I always come up with the example that the traffic regulations are the same all over the world. You know, we know what a green light is and we know what a red light is. But if you are in Iran, you realize that the red light doesn't do what it's supposed to do, that people run the light because, you know, the social contract is broken. The nation doesn't believe in the laws and it doesn't want to cooperate with its government. And therefore, whenever there is an opportunity to break those laws, they do. And therefore, my argument has always been that, you know, if you are respecting the red light, if you enjoy driving on the American open road, uh, part of the reason is because democracy is at work, because we all believe that these laws, be it the green light or, you know, freedom of speech, are there between us and a system that we are in constant dynamic interaction with and we have a social trust that keep us together. I love that idea. I love the idea that the success of democracy can be seen in the smallest things of daily life because I think so many Americans have lost faith in our democracy. I mean, you talked about kind of the dangers facing this democracy from extremes on either end. And I see this a lot on both sides, that this idea of America almost as a hellscape, that our democracy has failed or is in the process of failing, that we are fundamentally oppressive, you know, as a country, you know. And that idea has always struck me as so dangerous, right? This idea that American democracy is essentially dead, not only for the harm that it could cause in the U.S., but for the harm that it could cause around the world, you know, for all these dissidents, whether in Iran or anywhere else, who Mm -hmm. look to America as this shining city on a hill, as something to aspire to. And when you say that America's this, you know, fundamentally oppressive country, what you're really doing is you're giving ammunition to those dictators to say, oh, is this what you want? Is this the democracy that you're striving towards? It gives them an opportunity to smack down the people who are opposing their regime. I mean, do you feel the same way? (laughs) You just summarized my article titled Why I Decided to Sign the Harper's Letter. I was one of the several dozen people, writers and intellectuals who signed the Harper's Letter two years ago. I forget how long ago it was, 
And for our listeners, the Harper's letter was this really terrific letter that came out in the summer of 2020 from, I think, a little over 100 intellectuals and writers and so forth, basically making the point that free speech and the ability to have ideologically divergent viewpoints was something that really mattered. And there was a lot of controversy, actually, and, and a lot of risk for people who signed this letter. And Roy, I imagine that risk also existed for you as someone who is a professor at Yale, which you know, I can speak from experience, is a fairly left-wing place. Yes, yes. You know, on a daily basis, I face greater evil than Yale. So, <laughs> um, so it, it, it kind of, on the totem pole of anxieties, it doesn't rise to the top. For the record, I still have a soft spot for Yale, so. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. But you just summarized a short piece I wrote called Why I signed Harper's letter, making just that point that, you know, the American democracy isn't just for you people who live in this country. It's also for the rest of us elsewhere in the world who are fighting to have some semblance of this democracy in those countries. And when you begin to assault this democracy, in addition to what you just mentioned that you give ammunition to those dictators. For instance, you know, Khamenei gave a speech about George Floyd. You know, <laughs> like, like, they're all waiting for us to slip up so that they can, you know, criticize our justice system and our police system and all that. But I also made the point, and I will make it here now, that it comes as profound disillusionment to all the activists inside Iran, all the prisoners who are always of all the countries or all the political leadership in the world that they're trying to get the attention of or hope to be heard by, it is the United States first and foremost on the mind of activists and political prisoners. So when you are attacking the American democracy, you have to realize that, you know, yes, it's bad for you, but it's also bad for the rest of the world. And you know, I think this is another thing that native born in this country who consider themselves politically aware and politically engaged miss about what's going on outside of this country. And so, yes, there are a lot of aspects of this democracy that need to be made better and improved. But let's put things in perspective. For the first year that I arrived in this country, I could not walk without taking 10 steps and then looking back to see who was following me. And it took at least another couple of years for me to walk out on the street and let, I don't know, a boyfriend or a male companion hold my hand because mm. the terror mm. that Somebody is going to arrest us because we were not, you know, as a male and female, we were not related, had been so ingrained in me that even though I knew I was in America, my senses wouldn't allow me to let myself go. So these fears are real. And however broken aspects of this democracy might be, we still can hold hands and we still can walk on the streets and we still can dress as we wish. And by the way, one of the examples that I always cite is, you know, the fact that some of the simplest things that we do that we take for granted 
including something as silly as the fact that, you know, we wear a garment for a week or two and then we hold the receipt and then we take that garment back to the store and we say we don't want it anymore. It's purely and exclusively an American phenomenon. And it only happens in this country because you have a receipt, because the receipt is also an extension of the general social contract between the citizen and the institutions within this country, including businesses. And we can do these things that we think, eh, you know, it's just part of life. They're not part of life. There is no way in the world that you can return a garment anywhere else, you know, after you've purchased it for a week or two. And if you fail to see all these small things, all these small signs, then of course you become disillusioned in your democracy because it doesn't exist until every September when you begin to see, you know, these ugly ads on your television telling you who to vote for. Yeah, I think that's so interesting that one can see the beauty of democracy in these small little things. But yet when it comes time to actually do the most important part of democracy, you know, vote, participate in elections, what's highlighted isn't anything that's beautiful or incredible or unique or positive even in any way, but rather it's the ugly side, right? It's the negativity. It's the attacks. And we see them coming from every corner. And it's not just that your opponent is wrong. It's that your opponent must necessarily be evil. Evil. They're cheating you. They're lying to you. They must have ill intent. You know, I wonder if... Is that just the natural state? I mean, when you have a democracy where, by definition, you have competing interests and, you know, I want to win against my opponent, right, if I'm running for election. And, you know, psychologically, we know that fear is a more powerful emotion than hope, actually, in a lot of ways. Is there a way to combat that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's probably of all the, of the eight years of the presidency of Bill Clinton, this is the one line that I am left with when he said, when you need to decide who to vote for, don't vote for the guy who scares you or who makes you feel fear. Vote for the guy who gives you hope. And I think so much of authoritarianism rides on a sense of fear rather than a sense of hope because authoritarians aren't there to build the future. Authoritarians are there because, you know, the world is ending and they're the people who are holding it up or, you know, stopping it from falling apart. And so it's a matter of life is always about resisting against the evil that they tell you exists if they weren't there to protect you from it, right? So there is no future in authoritarianism. Why would there be a future? Because, you know, there is an ongoing fight with evil and it never ends. And, you know, all you have to do is believe in the leader who will protect you from the evil forces that are just outside of the borders ready to come in, ready to attack. So the notion of future, the notion of hope are inherently entwined with democratic thinking and democratic societies, because it is in these societies that you are given the rights as an individual to begin to hope, to begin to plan, to begin to count so that you can plan. So just to circle back to the beginning of our conversation and the question that you put to me, 
which was, you know, why did I say during my address at the Senate that I'm there first and foremost as an immigrant? Of course, I care about what's happening in Iran. And of course, I want Iranians to win this revolution, to come out triumphantly on the other side of this. But I am first and foremost a naturalized U.S. citizen. And I make these arguments because it's important for me to make sure that this foundational democracy works because it is from here, from the place of our standing upon this democracy that we can shoot filaments out to the rest of the world and make sure that other movements can have a shot at success. Let's transition now and talk a little bit about the current state of Iran. The nation has entered its fourth week of protests over the untimely death of Masa Amini at the hands of the regime's morality police. And it seems that Iran is no stranger in some ways to uprisings. I think most recently prior to this one in 2009 with the Green Movement. But for those who haven't been following these protests particularly closely, can you tell us what's going on? So we know here's an interesting bit. Masa Amini was a Kurdish girl who had come to Tehran for a visit. She was no activist. This is a very important issue because she represents an everyday person. If you're an activist or if you are politically inclined, then, you know, when they arrest you, the majority of people are inclined to think, ah, you know, she had it coming, right? If you mess with the system, they'll come after you. She wasn't. She was hugely ordinary. She was accidentally in Tehran to visit relatives. Contrary to what the reports have said, her family have told a reporter who has been in direct contact with them that she even had her headscarf on. It was the fact that the three bottom buttons of her Islamic uniform, this sort of this big raincoat-like thing that women have to put on in order to hide their curves and, you know, the shape of their body under were open. And that's why they picked on her. And it is the irrationality of the morality police that I think is really important. It's that irrationality that instills fear because you never know when they're coming for you. You never know why they will be provoked to stop you. And therefore, you can never be the kind of citizen that they want you to be, you know, because their notion of morality has no end. There is no ceiling. You know, it could be a button. It could be, you know, exposed hair. And I think in some ways, the fury that her death has caused in Iran is in some ways comparable to the fury that the killing of George Floyd caused in America. Because George Floyd wasn't challenging the system. George Floyd didn't have some sort of a political agenda. George Floyd was a, you know, was an everyday guy who came into an everyday contact with the irrational police of Minnesota. And I think it's that everydayness, it's that ordinariness that then tells the rest of the public that it doesn't matter who you are, that you don't have to have an agenda to come into crosshairs with the system, that they'll come after you. And you can even have your hair covered, they'll come for you. So this was sort of the final straw. 
And the people who had seen, you know, incident of arrest and assault, especially on women for weeks on end, poured into the streets. Now, you mentioned the Green Movement in 2009, which actually is a proper reference because that was the last time that people in Iran took to the streets in huge numbers. And so the two are comparable. However, the Green Movement was still a movement that considered itself in conversation with the Iranian authorities in that they were not against the system. They were pleading with the system. They were reasoning with the system to unrig the rigged elections, to give them back their votes or to recount the votes and to hold proper elections. That's a completely different mindset than the current mindset. That was the mindset of a nation that thought that reasoning with the system, taking a legitimate demand to the authorities, will possibly give them results. And so the primary slogan of that movement was, where's my vote? This time around, there is no conversation. People aren't taking their demands to the authorities. They're saying, death to the dictator, woman, life, liberty, the three things that the regime has never given and can never give to the people, because if it does, then it has basically undermined its own ideology. So where are we in the protests now? The Green Movement, as you mentioned, was in conversation with the regime, but the protests were fairly significant for a relatively brief period of time, and then they sort of fizzled out. And obviously the Obama administration at the time sort of decided to uh, not to involve itself and not really to come out in support of the protests. The Biden administration seems to be taking a slightly different tack here. So, you know, describe for us kind of the state of affairs right now with the protest movement and where do you see it moving forward? Well, it's very exciting. I mean, every day I open my computer, I look at social media, something amazing has happened and something terrifying has happened too. So we all know that the regime is capable of far greater assault on these protesters, on the revolutionaries on the streets, than it has deployed thus far. However, I should also add that in states farther away from the center, farther away from Tehran, they are conducting very violent assaults on protesters. In Kurdistan, in Baluchistan, they have been incredibly violent, and most of the losses of human life have been in those states. There's less reporting done in those places, and I think the regime would like to turn this into some sort of an ethnic confrontation. You know, in other words, create enough anger within Kurdistan or within Baluchistan that those communities begin to pick up arms and start some sort of armed confrontation so that this whole revolution inside Iran can be called some kind of a civil war and therefore they can then clamp down far more violently than they have thus far. It hasn't reached that point. Yet, wisely and patiently, these communities have been fending off these forces. What's also beautiful is that, you know, little by little, you see some of the key figures within the country begin to deliver messages of solidarity or messages that tell the special forces, the riot police, to not aim guns at protesters. So, you know, the crowds aren't going home. 
And, you know, there is talk of strike and there is also movement towards shutting down universities and high schools and all those things. But there also has to be international pressure, exactly like there was with Ukraine. I wrote, as you might have seen in my Atlantic piece, that Iran has reached the Ukrainian moment. These plights for democracy cannot win without the international support of other democracies that want to see their values spread in the world and take root. It isn't just because we like to export democracy. It's not an ideology for us. It's that the health of our democracy here in America depends on whether or not these democracies or these plights for democracy can succeed. Because if they lose, eventually we will be weakened at home too. And we can have a different conversation about how this actually happens, but it does happen. So we need to support the revolutionaries inside Iran. We need to deliver as much pressure as we can to the elite. And we need to strengthen the hands of the revolutionaries on the streets in whatever way we can, at the moment, most importantly, by making sure that they have access to the internet. Do you think the Biden administration has been doing enough in this regard? They have been doing some very important things. However, you can't carry on negotiating with the regime while you're also trying to deliver the message to the demonstrators, to the revolutionaries that you're with them. It just doesn't happen that way. It's one of those things. You can't multitask this thing. It's one of those moments in history where you actually cannot carry on with diplomacy because this isn't about diplomacy. Americans are very leery of using the term regime change because they have been criticized and in many ways, rightly so, for having intervened in the affairs of other nations around the world in the 20th century. However, <laughs> there are some regimes that need to go and the Iranian regime happens to be one. So we can't simultaneously be negotiating with the very people with whom the nation, that the nation that is trying to overthrow them, we're telling we want to strengthen. Those two things cannot happen simultaneously. You started talking about the interconnected nature of, you know, democracies around the world and how basically strengthening and or helping to breathe life into a democracy movement abroad will help a democracy movement at home. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, you can talk a little bit about how that happens, right? How, you know, a fledgling democracy movement in Iran could have a positive impact on America's democracy in general. And obviously, you kind of have the inverse of that, where you have authoritarian regimes abroad having a negative impact and posing a threat to democracies in the free world. So I wonder if you can say a little bit more about that. What mechanism do you see at work there? Fear is one, right? And we've been talking about fear during this conversation. Let's look at 1979 in Iran. We had this regime that came to power in 1979. And the one thing that they did, which was in the most evil way, the most innovative thing that had come out of Iran in the 20th century in the evil category, was to legitimize certain open assault on America by a government, right? 
and the taking of the U.S. hostages was the most important manifestation of that. And thereafter, in the region, you had all sorts of radical Islamist groups that started sprouting. Why? Because once the blueprint is there, it not only inspires others, but it also opens the way for them to begin to flourish. And so there is no surprise that ISIS and all the groups that followed after 1979, and whether they are in agreement with the government of Iran or allies of the government of Iran or not, their great inspiration was always Khomeini. And conversely, you can see that when Russia began to assault Ukraine, there were many, many Iranians who had been activists throughout Europe and outside of Iran who actually went to Ukraine to sign up for the army, for the you know international army. And I was fascinated by that, that there were these Iranians who saw before anybody else that this war was their war too, that if Ukrainians won, if Russia was defeated, Iran would be weakened because, you know, Russia is the chief backer of Iran. Russia and Iran together are probably the most important reason why Bashar Assad is standing today. And therefore, I think it doesn't take too much for the democratic activists to realize that defeating one will bring about the defeat of the other. And therefore, I think whatever happens in Ukraine will not stay in Ukraine, unlike Las Vegas. It would deeply affect Iran. And I think our successes are interconnected. Whether we here in the United States see it or not, the people who are fighting on the ground already do. Actually, I didn't know that Iranians had been joining Ukrainian armed forces. But they weren't allowed to join, actually, but they did report. Oh. Because, you know, I think it was hard for the Ukrainians to actually trust that these were good figures to include. But there were several who did report to Ukraine. Well, either way, I mean, the intent was actually not even something that I was familiar with. You know, obviously, I've yeah. seen Americans, I'd seen Israelis. Europeans coming and joining yeah. Ukrainian armed forces. It's really interesting to hear that there are also Iranians looking yeah. to do the same thing. And this interconnected nature, I mean, it's something that I think is really not talked about enough, right? I mean, one of the yeah. things that Gary and I love to say is that, you know, we wish that Russian men had half the bravery of Iranian women. Right. I have heard that and I don't like it. Well, tell me why. Because I don't think you bully people into rising up. I think you inspire people into rising up. So I love Gary's posts, but it's probably my least favorite posts of his. I think, you know, you stir people, you inspire people, not shame people into rising up. But I have to say one thing about why I think the interconnectedness broke down. Because, and this is something that I intend to write about, but the notion of interconnectedness was profoundly entwined with communism, hmm. right? Because communism was an ideology that had every universal intention there was to have. You know, workers of the world unite. You know, you have nothing to lose but the chains on your hands and feet, you know. And so the idea that a worker was a worker was a worker, no matter where that worker was in the world, was hugely important because they instilled in the global community that if we 
feel alone. And if we feel abandoned, we only need to become communists. And then we immediately would have a global family that would take care of us because we were all workers and our enemies were all the bourgeoisie that were fighting against us. And the beauty of this communism was that we belonged to it no matter what country we were from. And the fight is a universal fight. It was just moving from one place to the other, but it was coming to all of us. When communism was defeated, the notion of universalism was defeated too. And what a shame. Communism was bad, but certain universalisms are exactly what we need at the moment. We need universalisms when we are fighting with COVID. We need universalism when we are thinking about climate change. We need universalism when we are trying to save democracy. And so while we are continuing to reconsider what was bad about the Cold War, we also need to to consider what was good about the Cold War, or at least about, you know, the evil that communism was. And I think the idea of universalism, which we all unanimously turned our back on, is something that we can take away from that evil empire and begin to appropriate it for our own purposes. So on the one hand, I feel like this would be a really terrific spot to end. I just think that's such a strong idea, this the positive element of universalism. But before we do, I, I just can't help myself. And I do want to ask you about, you know, the inspire people to rise up, right? I mean, the phrase that Gary and I have been using with respect to sort of Russian men and, and Iranian women, it comes from a place, certainly from Gary's point of view, as someone who for 20 years has been advocating against Putin, for someone who now lives in exile, for someone whose life has been you know, under threat countless times. And meanwhile, for myself as the son of refugees, as the son of immigrants, there's, I think, a fairly significant frustration to it, right? This idea of like Iranian women who have been essentially erased from society or the regime has attempted to erase them from society since 1979 have finally had enough and they have united in a revolution that, you know, really is safe to say is a women's revolution. Meanwhile, in Russia, where masculinity is prized above all else, and in fact, the Russian word for bravery is mužstva which literally translates to manliness. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. It's the same word. And yet here, you know, Putin calls for a partial mobilization and suddenly you see hundreds of thousands of Russian men looking to flee. And, you know, I know that in Europe, for instance, and in Ukraine, there's a lot of arguments against granting them visas because the idea is, look, no, don't let them out. Keep them in so that they will have no choice but to rise up. So I want to get your sense of this. So first, Do you think, would that be an effective tactic, kind of trying to keep these men who are otherwise looking to flee to keep them in Russia and try to get them to rise up that way? You know, you've highlighted that the sort of downside of allowing frustration to lead to kind of shaming people, I suppose, into into rising up. And you've sort of made the point that you don't think that works. So I wonder if you could offer kind of a different approach. How would you see inspiration leading to this kind of movement in a country like Russia that's becoming increasingly totalitarian. So I can tell you what has fascinated me about what's going on in Iran right now, personally. Because I was a kid, I was a girl under the same hijab in Iran, right? 
And you were a Jew, right? I was a Jew, right? And by the way, I was a communist Jew at the time. <laughs> so I thought, my parents are Jewish, but you know, I'm something else. So I'm saying this because I did consider myself heavily invested in Iran and in its future, even when I was a teenager. But at the same time, as revolutionary, so-called, as I was even then, I could never imagine, never in a million years, taking my scarf off and saying, to hell with you, I'm walking without it. It was unfathomable to me. And incidentally, I've been, you know, listening in on a lot of the conversations on Iranian language, Persian language media. And I see that people from my generation keep saying we were always against the hijab. What we could not fathom was the idea of taking it off and walking down the street. So I've been trying to figure out what happened between that generation and my generation. What changed? And what changed is that the next generation realized that it has no future, that the only way to getting to a future is to do just that, is to be brave and fight, or else there was death on the north side, south side, east and west, that there was no hope for anything else unless this fight was overcome, this hurdle was overcome. And we didn't see it that way. We thought you negotiate or you do, you know, incremental things or you vote and you reform. They are done and they have lost their sense of fear. And they realize that the only way to the future is just that. So I think one has to try to figure out just the right combination of political messaging and inspiration to show the people in Russia at the moment that there is no future, that the future will be incredibly bleak. And the only way that there is hope is if they rise. Otherwise, their children will be worse off than they are and their children's children will be worse off than they are. This is what happened in Iran. I don't know how it happened. I can tell you I couldn't do it but the next generation is. Well, on that very hopeful note, I want to thank you, Roya, for joining me today. Thank you. This has really been wonderful. And with that, I want to thank you all for listening to this episode of Winter is Here, brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative. I'm your host, Yuri Lepstein. At RDI, we are committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player at renewdemocracy.substack.com and share the episode with a friend. Or become an RDI subscriber at rdi.org. Thank you.